This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dr. Dawn on Careers. Welcome to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Graham, and by day I lead career coaching for the executive MBAs at the Wharton School. I'm also a licensed psychologist, former corporate recruiter, and author of the book Switchers, How Smart Professionals Change Careers and See Success. We're excited to be bringing you all new content this month on Dr. Dawn on Careers, so mark your calendar for noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific every Thursday, and tune into Channel 132 for the latest career tips, job search advice, and market updates. And of course, a big shout out to Dion Simpkins, our engineer, and Dana Cash, our producer, for making this show sound so fabulous each week. So if you're a stats lover like me, Um, Many of the numbers you're going to hear today from our guests are going to blow you away. I'm going to kick off with this stat. So humans are living longer, and the first people to live to 150 years have already been born. So what does that mean for the future of work or retirement? Will our careers soon span 100 years? Well, I'm very excited to welcome today's guest, Dr. Michelle Weiss, to the show. Dr. Weiss is a leading expert on designing the future of learning and work in the age of longevity. Currently, she's an entrepreneur in residence and senior advisor at Imaginable Futures. And prior to that, she was the chief innovation officer at Strata Education Network's Institute for the Future of Work. A former Fulbright scholar, Michelle is a graduate of Harvard University and earned her master's and doctorate degrees from Stanford. Dr. Michelle Weiss's voice has been featured in all major education publications as well as top tier business outlets such as The Economist, Wall Street Journal, and Harvard Business Review. And her book, Long Life Learning, How to Prepare Yourself for Jobs That Don't Even Exist, is coming out in November 2020. Welcome to Dr. Don on Careers, Michelle. I'm so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Don. Okay, so there's so much great information to cover today, but I want to kick off with how in awe I am of the research and data you've shared in your articles and videos. Um, once, Once I started diving in, I really couldn't tear myself away for many reasons, but primarily because we talk about these topics on the show, and I wanted our listeners to hear these data and start thinking about how it all relates to the future of their own careers. So let's dive in and start at a a macro level, and then we can dig into the details. Um, Michelle, you analyzed three distinct areas that affect workforce longevity and economic growth. Those are education systems, employee, excuse me, employer hiring models, and employee skill sets. Can you help us understand how these are interrelated and why they are relevant for every professional to understand and pay attention to in their career management? Yeah. So, I mean, I think what you're pointing to with those three areas is in, in an ideal system, it would just be pretty direct and simple for us to translate our skill sets, make them understandable to a future employer and get a job pretty easily. But we all know that whole process is really just kind of stymied and just difficult and and tangled. And part of it is we're all speaking different languages, whether we are a job seeker, whether we are an employer, and whether we are an an educator. And I think in today's moment, what we see more and more is that the kinds of ways in which we used to be able to depend on certain proxies for talent and skills and knowledge are just not, they're just not um, enabling us to make those switches as you as you describe them. And so um, you have a lot of people being left behind by this emerging knowledge economy. And that really has kind of has has really hit us hard with with the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's that's really like in a nutshell what we've got going on. We have a different 
set of languages that people use to describe their competencies, their skills, their, their capabilities. And none of that is kind of making this process easy for people to navigate transitions. According to your research, the future of work will demand a new kind of employee who will have to continuously return to learning to keep up with a rapidly evolving economy. So I think you're absolutely right. We're seeing this now in COVID where a lot of employees are being displaced. A lot of industries are being displaced and people maybe didn't see this coming. So, so what is, does this mean exactly? What do you mean a new kind of employee who will continuously have to keep learning? Will we continue to see these industries go away and new ones emerge to the point where if we are working 100 years, which, oh my God, that sounds awful, um, <laughs> we're going to have to, you know, continuously go back to school every few years. I mean, what, what does that actually mean? Yeah, so kind of like you, I've been obsessed with just transitions in general. And, and obviously one of the first major transitions that occurs for us in life is or used to be that first major transition from education to work, from post-secondary education to work. And, you know, just from the research that I've been able to collaborate on with folks over the years, we've really come to see how just extraordinarily difficult that first transition is and how ill-prepared learners feel as they make that transition and how much underemployment we see in the workforce. And generally the way people describe underemployment is having a job that really doesn't require that post-secondary credential like a bachelor's degree. And even in past research, we've seen how so much of the labor market actually really gets stuck in this kind of permanent detour, this kind of long-term rut of underemployment and how hard it is to escape that. And so if we do a kind of not so great job of enabling just that first transition into the workforce, if we also then kind of connect that to the fact that we have these kind of uh, exponentially changing technologies that are just changing the nature of work in really dramatic ways and upending industries and taking away people's jobs, we are going to have to ultimately figure out ways to stay competitive in this new labor market. And if we think about going back to school or going back to more graduate school, it just doesn't make sense in that longer, more turbulent work life. At the same time, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for us to think that just because we go get an associate's degree or get a four-year degree very early on in our work lives, that somehow that will sustain us throughout a much longer work life. And even if you don't necessarily buy into these theories on longevity and what people are proposing in terms of sort of uh, getting beyond, regularly getting beyond, you know, 100 years of, of life, we already see in labor market data today that by the time early baby, boom, early baby boomers are, are retiring, they have at least 12 job transitions themselves before they retire. So we just, we can anticipate that we're gonna have at least more than 12 job transitions. And in order to do that well, how in the world will we, where, where are we gonna go? Where are we gonna go to skill up? Where are we gonna access that kind of short burst targeted, more precise education, we don't have great answers for that yet. If you're just tuning in, we're here with Dr. Michelle Weiss, who is leading the creation of a new ecosystem that connects learners to more targeted educational experiences that fit the needs of employers. A former Fulbright Scholar, graduate of Harvard and Stanford, Dr. Weiss is currently a senior advisor at Imaginable Futures, and I'm excited to have the opportunity to speak to her today about her research and the predictions for the future of work. So, Michelle, let's, let's stick on this idea of education because I, I have several questions around kind of how this is changing. And I think these discussions have really been amplified with the pandemic and a lot of programs moving online and what does this mean for the future of education. So in your, your videos and in your writings, a couple of things jump out to me, which are that college degrees don't give you the social mobility that they once did. And they, they don't just boost you into the middle class like they used to because you've got this financial burden and 
you know, a number of other things going on. So tell us a little bit more about why this is and why we keep buying into the fact that this hasn't changed. Yeah, I mean, I think um, some, one of the biggest sort of sets of eye-opening research was uh, coming out of Raj Chetty's work when he showed that really, you know, it's a 50-50 chance that most Americans will end up out-earning their parents. Um, whereas before, you know, so few people actually entered into post-secondary education that when you actually did attain your bachelor's degree credential, it was that automatic ticket into the middle class. And even as, um, a, you know, a, a worker on the front lines in a manufacturing facility, you could earn middle class wages and, and really live that kind of comfortable lifestyle. But as we've seen really since the 1980s, especially, we've seen this kind of great divergence of, of um, trajectories of economic mobility where the top 10% of OECD countries are really starting to earn more and more while the bottom 10% is earning less and less. And so um, the, the other challenge that we have is really since the 1950s, we've had just this explosion of higher education institutions. We used to have, you know, closer to a thousand institutions and really over the last 70 years, we've seen that explode at one point up to over 4,700 four-year degree granting institutions. And what, what happens is if you have most of your learners going into post-secondary education, um, and yet many of those experiences are less you know, differentiable from one another, it becomes harder for employers to just sort of rely on a degree as some sort of proxy for, for talent. And that's what they've been, they've been really doing. And so now you see employers trying to get at more precise skills. And they realize that just requiring a degree is, is not enough. And they've tried to up credentials. So they've tried to ask for higher and higher credentials over the years, you know, for being an executive assistant, as an example, and asking for a degree, even though that job didn't used to require a degree. And so you see these different kinds of adjustments that are happening in the labor market, but they're still not getting at the underlying problem, which is, we just don't know how to really validate the skills of someone who has gone through that post-secondary education experience. And we also don't know how to differentiate really well between the majors. And, and you've seen actually, just by looking at um, labor market data of people's job postings and profile and you know, social resumes, sorry, professional resumes and social profile data, we have access to all this kind of big data now where we can start seeing that it really does matter what you major in at times in order to, to launch yourselves well into that first good job and how important that first good job is in determining the rest of your career trajectory. And we also see how important it is for people to get work-based learning opportunities. And that's, that's a really striking question to think about now, especially with COVID-19, is as more and more universities are starting to take their uh, coursework online, what are they going to do in order to integrate, you know, real world problem solving for their learners and get them some sort of, you know, virtual internship or apprenticeship opportunity so that they can have that work experience and facilitate that transition into the labor market. So these are really really tough questions. They've always been problematic for even in-person learning and how in the world are we going to now do this for, you know, the vast majority of online education that's going to happen over the next year or so. And you, you've packed so much great stuff into that, that what you just talked about. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of unpacking that. So one of the things you said, which I I talk about a lot is that there's so many jobs out there that list college education or a four-year degree as, as important for jobs that they can't really explain why they're important. So, you know, what, what is this? And I think you're absolutely right. It's just a way for people to kind of differentiate something in the applicant tracking system to go from 300 resumes down to, uh, you know, maybe maybe 10 that they're going to interview. I think something else you talked about that, you know, is a 
is a stat that kind of blew me away is that, you know, most, this isn't the stat that blew me away. Most college, college freshmen say that getting a job or promoting their career in some way is their reason for attending college. I think in one of the studies you said it was 88%. This is the stat that blew me away that according to a Gallup poll, 96% of chief academic officers, so the administration at these universities, believe they are preparing their students adequately, but only 11% of business leaders agree. That is a huge discrepancy. And um, you know, how did we get here? How did that, I mean, it couldn't have always been that bad. Yeah, it's just, it's a huge disconnect. And it really, um, it really gets to this notion of what is the ultimate outcome of post-secondary education. And we have to remember that in its earliest forms, it really, the professional schools, the graduate schools were really that time to access that more formal training to prepare learners for that new world of work. But given the fact that today, the cost of just those four years or two years of higher education are so outlandish for most families, it's hard for most people to fathom, you know, pushing that off until uh, graduate school. And so um, the, the onus of where training lies has been really kind of in this weird limbo phase for the last, you know, couple of decades, um, where you've had employers really retreating from you know, training their incumbent workforce or training new uh, frontline workers and just expecting that people come in with the exact work experience. And then you've also had a retreat from higher education of saying that is the province of employers. We are about, you know, cultivating these lifelong learners, people who, who can adapt to any situation. And meanwhile, you have, you know, a huge swath of our, our learner population who uh, doesn't feel like they're getting either or they you know, they're not necessarily feeling like um, they have the life skills to be successful. So even if they, even if universities do believe that they're, that they're creating these, you know, these kind of broad based um, conceptual foundations of knowledge for learners, learners are going into the labor market, not really understanding how to translate those skills and make themselves marketable, marketable to an employer. And, I think the, the other really interesting piece here is there was a move just over the last decade. You saw it where there was this intense conversation around STEM and coding, and everyone thought you just needed technical skills, that that, that, was, the key, that was the key to success. But what you hear from employers is more nuanced. They actually really need this kind of interesting mix of human and technical skills. They need it in equal measure. And if you look at more of the research on the future of work, you see that there's actually even more of an emphasis on those human skills than there are on those technical skills, because we can anticipate a day in which actually machines will be able to do a lot of this work better than us. So how do we, how do we leverage the kind of skills that, that computers and robots and machine learning just simply cannot execute? So it's, it's this fascinating moment we're in where the, the kinds of skills that we're upholding as prized in the labor market kind of keep switching that, that target, those, those goalposts keep moving. And at the same time, we, we don't have either a post-secondary, um, you know, educational program really meeting the needs of learners to, to, to make them feel well-prepared. And we don't have the formal employer training also that is that is doing that kind of holistic human plus technical skills training. You're just tuning in. You are listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Dawn Graham. Today, we are so fortunate to be speaking with Dr. Michelle Weiss, whose research is revolutionizing how we look at education and the future of work. Uh, as we're talking about those skills and unpacking those skills, Michelle, that, that I saw in one of your articles, um, that according to a McKinsey study, the number of skills that are needed in the workplace jumped from 178 to 924, which increased that much in just a three-year period. So 
what does that even mean? And what are, are all those additional skills? Is that what you mean when you're talking about the, um, you know, kind of what, what people classify as some of these soft skills that employers are looking for? Or what is, what is in that number? Part of it is that um, both employers in their job postings and, in, and job seekers are getting a little bit more explicit about the kinds of skills, skills that they have. Um, I think it is also that broadening of an understanding of what we tend to think of as soft skills, right? We think of things like problem solving and communication and collaboration and teamwork, but those are such broad skills that it's really difficult for you know, we can't just go on the market and just say, you know, I'm a great communicator and a job postings asking for people with great communication skills and expect some sort of match there, right? And it really matters the kind of career trajectory you're thinking about. So if you're thinking about moving more into HR versus marketing versus behavioral health, that simple soft skill or workforce competency of communication can mean very, very different things. So in behavioral health, it might mean something very specific like crisis management or grief counseling. And in marketing, it might mean something more like search engine optimization and storytelling and brand management. And then in HR, you know, it's about onboarding and internet recruiting. And so we have these different kinds of ways of describing those same very broad skills, but making it much more specific to an industry domain, which is which is just kind of fascinating because I think there are real opportunities for us to figure out in the future how we start to build more targeted educational programs, especially for adult learners when they are trying to retool themselves for that next switch or that next transition. They need to have very specific and precise skill sets that the employers are actually asking for now um, and this is this is the way we we start to get there. Michelle, I know um, in one of the articles I read that you wrote that EQ or emotional intelligence is going to be probably one of the most important skills in the future. And we hear this term a lot, but I'm wondering if you can kind of break it down a little bit so that people understand not only what it really refers to but how they can grow this? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So a lot of different um, groups who are working on future of work studies like the World Economic Forum or Brookings or McKinsey, these different um, thought leaders out there, they've, they've been identifying that some of those skills that we're going to need as humans, that we're, need, that we're gonna need to leverage in order to stay competitive are really the skills that define us as humans. So if we think about certain things that we're just going to have to relinquish to computers because they will just do them more accurately and faster than we can, um, these human skills you know, around judgment and critical thinking or systems thinking or creativity, some of the, some of the things that people are realizing are going to be so critical in the future are those um, EQ skills, you know, like emotional intelligence and being able to empathize and care for others. Um, and so this is, uh, this is, this is, this is interesting because, you know, you hear a lot of liberal arts institutions, especially describe their learning outcomes as precisely, you know, building these skills in learners. But if you are a 45 year old worker who's seeing, you know, his job become, uh, becoming obsolete, your first instinct is not going to be to go back and get a liberal arts degree, right? So what is the way that you practice these human skills? And we, we're, we're really in the early phases of developing um, more solutions in this space, but this is where it's really interesting to see some evolution in things like virtual reality and augmented reality. And, and there are different kinds of solutions emerging where people can start to um, you know, get uh, micro interventions being sent to their cell phone to help them practice something on the job where they learn how not to judge a customer as they come in the door and they kind of reflect on those, those interactions with their customers or in one case with a company like Mersion, you get to actually be transported into 
a space where there are avatars interacting with you in a very low stakes environment and you learn how to manage a negotiation or give someone feedback or receive feedback and you get to practice it. And so there are really interesting opportunities ahead for us to think about how we do this kind of whole person learning. Because again, it's not just going to be about technical skills, although we will also need to have enough technical skills to be dangerous in the sense that as we deal with more and more artificial intelligence, as an example, we're going to also need to engage our critical thinking skills and question that artificial intelligence because there's also so much that is in the black box of AI that we have to really understand you know, which pieces of data are those um, machines being trained on that might be flawed. We need to question those, those pieces that go into, into that black box. So it's going to be, again, that kind of really important mixture of human and technical skills, but it is a real kind of open opportunity for a lot of social entrepreneurs uh, who are thinking about innovating in this space to do more in terms of thinking about how do we ensure that whether you're 35, 50, 65, and you're navigating your next job transition, how do you make sure that you can demonstrate that you have been strengthening and building those those soft skills over time. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to SiriusXM channel 132. I'm your host, Dr. Don Graham. We're here with Dr. Michelle Weiss, who looked at the future of work. And we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking about what's going on in the employer market. And specifically, if you've been impacted by COVID-19, if you're one in, in one of the industries that has been hard hit, what types of transferable skills have been shown to be able to catapult you into industries that are growing? So you definitely want to stay tuned for that. You're listening to SiriusXM channel 132. You're listening to Dr. Dawn on Careers. On Business Radio. Welcome back to Dr. Dawn on Careers on Sirius XM channel 132. If you're looking for a great way to build new skills, check out LinkedIn Learning's vast array of online courses, which are always available free to premium users, but many of which are now open to all LinkedIn users to help support professionals in their careers during these unusual economic times. So my course, The Likeability Effect, is free for the rest of the year, and you can also check out my courses on visibility in the workplace, career switchers, and getting into the mind of the hiring manager. And be sure to reach out to me on LinkedIn with a tailored message and let me know what you think. And I'm so excited to be speaking with Dr. Michelle Weiss today, who is currently the entrepreneur in residence at Imaginable Futures and who is revolutionizing how we look at education and the future of work. She also has a new book coming out in November and you're going to want to read it. It's called Long Life Learning, How to Prepare Yourself for Jobs That Don't Even Exist. And Michelle, where can people follow you to uh, stay up to date on what's going on in the future of work and to um, make sure they're aware of when your book hits the shelves? Yeah, so probably the easiest place is on LinkedIn. Uh, the user profile is RW Michelle. Um, and then anyone can pre-order the book, but it, it's actually an easy publication date to remember. It's coming out on election day and you ah. can get it on... <laughs> You can get it on, uh, you know, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, but it's called Long Life Learning. And I love that title, by the way. I don't know what your motivation was for the title, but I'd love to hear. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's exactly it is. Um, I think I was just noticing over the years how whenever anyone used the phrase lifelong learning, everyone would just sort of automatically nod along, you know, and we would all just sort of intuitively agree, yes, we all need lifelong learning. But then I wasn't actually seeing any of any behavioral changes, any changes in the architecture and the systems and the infrastructure that we need to actually enable lifelong learning. I think we kind of maybe assume that extension schools and continuing education programs have that covered, but that's really just not going to be sufficient for the kinds of ways in which we're going to have to 
return to learning so much more frequently and just for that real short burst of just what we need. And so, yeah, I thought that also by kind of framing it around this kind of staggering notion of a longer work life, suddenly it just pushes us to realize we have to start building some of those systems now. Yeah, no, I, well said. And I love that you're, you're the very first thing people read on your book cover will cause them to pause and say, wait, how is this different? Because I think we have to start looking at it differently. So I love that. Um, make sure you, you mark election day to not only vote, but pick up Michelle's <laughs> book, uh, Long Life Learning. So we've been talking about what, what I've been saying are staggering statistics around employment, around job change, around um, you know, what's happening in the market regarding education and work. And another, we talked a little bit earlier, Michelle, about how it's really important to have both technical skills as well as emotional intelligence and some of these, these other quote unquote soft skills. And I say quote unquote, because I don't think they're, they're soft skills anymore. I think they are, are required skills to be effective going forward. But one of the other uh, things we've been talking about on the show are what are some alternatives to four-year degrees uh, that will actually land you a job and maybe be slightly more cost-effective and not incur a lot of debt. And you had talked about the uh, the Minerva Project, which is something, if, if you haven't heard about it, it's a new four-year university experimenting with a an entirely different approach to undergrad experience um, at a fraction of the cost. There are certainly coding boot camps and Coursera, Udacity, and these are all, you know, trade schools, I think, are another great option if you're looking for different alternatives. But one of the stats that really blew me was that job attainment rates for people who attended coding boot camps were between 65 and 99 percent, whereas job attainment rates according to the American Bar Association for law school graduates was only 57%. And I think that would, would blow a lot of people's minds, Michelle. <laughs> um, what, what does this, and I know this is one piece of data, and I know this is um, you know, ongoing exploration and more data coming out every day, but, but what, what does this stat kind of say to you about the future of work and and where we're putting our time and money in terms of educating ourselves yeah so I, I think it gets to the question of quality right because as we think about the prestige of getting that degree we tend to place a lot of value on that four-year experience precisely because we deem it a high quality experience but as we all know, there are very different kinds of four-year programs out there. And I think what, what groups like coding boot camps have been able to do in a very short amount of time is really upend the notion that you have to go to school for four or six years um, in order to gain a quality experience that leads to great work outcomes. Because what they were able to do in, a, you know, in these very packed immersive experiences was to show that actually if you just get 12 weeks or 16 weeks um, and really just kind of dig into learning the, you know the basics of front-end web development there's so much of a demand for this that these can lead to great great job opportunities and I think the the most exciting evolution of these kinds of boot camp models are what we're seeing because really those bootcamp models originally were kind of more geared towards people who already had bachelor's degrees, who um, could actually afford to pay $20,000 out of pocket in order to access one of those, one of those bootcamps. And over time, that model has really evolved to a lot of entrepreneurs thinking about how do we actually leverage this model to impact the people who need the most help launching into better opportunities. So you know, there are really interesting groups out there like Launch Code and IC Stars and Tectonic and Kenzie Academy and um, even Philadelphia Works um, and JVS and Perscolis, these different groups that are trying to sort of think about how do we actually truncate 
uh, a learning experience into the right kind of package where we can integrate the right sorts of human skills development, where we can also give them the right kinds of techno technological and technical skills in advanced manufacturing or um, healthcare or web development or cybersecurity and connect them to employers who are open to touching a more diverse uh, workforce. And what they've realized in building those kinds of what I like to call on-ramps, um, what we realized with those on-ramps is that actually they are combining more than just even that human and technical skills development. They are also combining wraparound support services uh, so that people can navigate public benefit systems so that they can get the right kinds of counseling because some of these folks are formerly incarcerated adults or they need transportation or childcare. There's all kinds of services that adult learners need that maybe an 18 to 24 year old, you know, campus-based student may not need access to. Um, and then there's also different kinds of career entry supports that you need and also supports that exist once you even have that job. So you see these really interesting models emerging. Um, and when I was working and leading Strata Institute for the Future of Work, we wrote this piece uh, with Entangled Solutions all about these various on-ramps to good jobs that were really geared toward the bottom quartile of our adult population, people who are just not thriving in the labor market. And we need a whole lot more innovation in that space. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about that because I think that that definitely has been catapulted right now. And I think there are universities and employers who are starting to look at that, especially as you know, we have uh, children not in school and parents are trying to, to juggle work and, and new demands in the job and, and all of those things. So it's encouraging to see that people um, in these organizations, these leaders are looking at this, but I think we have to do so much more and I'm excited about the work you're doing as well as uh, the organizations you're affiliated with, Michelle. Hey, if you're just tuning in, do you know what? Only 36% of college grads feel prepared for the workforce. So today we are talking all about the future of work and what's changing. And we're here with Dr. Michelle Weiss, who is leading the creation of a new ecosystem that connects learners to more targeted educational experiences that fit the needs of employees. Lawyers. A former Fulbright Scholar, graduate of Harvard and Stanford, Dr. Weiss is currently a senior advisor at Imaginable Futures, and we're so excited to be speaking with her and Dr. Dawn on careers today. So um, one more stat that I want to throw out there that, again, I, I actually just quoted you in an article that I wrote for Forbes because, again, blew my mind was that in 2014, LinkedIn's top 10 jobs were roles that didn't exist five years earlier. Um, top 10 jobs. So you, you mentioned big data architect, cloud manager, UI, UX designer, Android development. Um, and I think this is continuing. You know, every year we're finding these new jobs, these new industries that didn't exist previously, Michelle, which is why I think the work that, that you're doing is so critical. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if there are employers who are working with educational uh, institutions or you know, understanding this upskilling and kind of getting it right. Yeah, I mean, there are. There are some really kind of leading forward-thinking institutions. Um, some of them also, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see many of them are some of the larger kind of mega universities that have that huge online educational presence, but they are realizing that they need to have some sort of alignment or shared taxonomy around skills to make that, you know, transition from education to work a little simpler so that everyone is, you know, really actually speaking the same language. Um, so you do have um, uh, groups like, you know, Western Governors University and um, UMGC, uh, University of Maryland Global Campus and Southern New Hampshire University and other major universities kind of collaborating on this, uh, this kind of open skill stack alliance work um, to, to, to try to get at um, some of that translation. But and then you've always, of course, had in the background sort of you know, 
behind the scenes, so many different kind of community colleges doing this hard work of, you know, mitigating workforce shortages and trying to facilitate that connection. But we haven't really seen systemic or systematic ways in which this is scaling uh, widely and, and enabling, you know, any university provider to kind of uh, to collaborate with um, with employers. Um, but you do see, you do see, um, it's not, it's not as though universities are just completely sitting still. I think the, the key, the key question that every university is going to have to ask during this particular time is, as we switch over to online, obviously we have an incumbent uh, student population that we need to attend to, but for some of the institutions that are really struggling um, and, and are, 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 are trying to figure out new business models for themselves, is there potentially a different way to approach this real disconnect between uh, you know, learning providers and the labor market? Is there a way they can create something other than a two or four year degree program and something other than a one year certificate program? Is there a way they can create something that is much more targeted much more short burst, really tied to labor market demand um, and reskill that person as quickly as possible, ideally while they're still earning um, some money at the same time, you know, do it while they're actually earning um, and get them into that better opportunity. So you have groups like the Skill Up Coalition trying to facilitate those connections between career navigation, more targeted education, and a more direct connection to employers by bringing together a bunch of different stakeholders um, also. You, um, in addition to your model benefiting employers and workers, Michelle, I mean, I think there's also uh, data out there that showed there's there's revenue generating opportunities for learning providers. So, so you would think that would be a major motivator yeah, um, to kind of move forward. So, so why aren't more jumping on board? Is it because they're they're too tied to traditional ways? I know. I mean, that's one of the challenges that I see, uh, especially working at you know a top three university where where traditions are very embedded and people have been there a long time and and they they kind of hold tight to those traditions. So I'm I'm just curious, are those getting in the way? Are there other things? I mean, that's certainly a huge, a huge piece of it. So I used to work with Clayton Christensen, who is the godfather of uh, the theories of disruptive innovation. And we called this, um, this academic inertia. It's just, there are certain kinds of processes that get kind of locked in um, because it's so hard to actually pull together resources and processes to deliver on a specific value proposition in higher education and actually create revenue. It takes so many cycles um, to actually get there where you are generating revenue. So then to suddenly dismantle that and say, no, we need to adjust to this new thing that's emerging. It's, it's inordinately difficult for institutions to make that sort of switch. So you see with um, universities like some of the, the online education providers that I just mentioned, what they're doing instead is they're spinning out separate ventures um, that are kind of more in stealth mode. They're more autonomous potential growth units where these different models are allowed to kind of experiment and find a new you know, funding mechanism so that it's not always Title IV dollars, so that it's not always having to be an accredited time-based credit hour program. So you see these different kinds of innovations happening, but they're, but they're sheltered. They're these uh, separate autonomous growth units, and that's precisely kind of coming from the playbook of, um, of disruption theory. Um, so there's, there's that piece, which makes it really difficult. It's also hard for us to, uh, you know, prepare learners for jobs that we don't know. What, what are those jobs going to be? We just, we just, these are jobs that don't exist yet. So how do we do that? Um, how do we do that differently? And that really comes down to doing things like problem-based learning or project-based learning. And that is a huge shift from the kind of content-based education that we currently provide. It is, it is the way in which all our systems are built is to deliver content through that kind of lecture-based, time-based format. 
um, but to suddenly transform education into teaching learners and preparing them to solve real world problems and give them that kind of adaptability and resilience to be able to, you know, adjust to any kind of ambiguous situation. We just, it's, it's not how we train our PhDs, right? It's not how we train our professors. It's not how we measure success in higher education. So that kind of model is, even though we know intuitively it would make a lot of sense, it is so hard to transform, you know, this barge <laughs> that is, that is yeah. higher education moving in a very different direction. So it's a huge, it's a huge problem to tackle. We're starting to tackle it, but it, it's going to take some time. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Dr. Dawn on Career Sirius XM channel 132. We are here with Dr. Michelle Weiss, who's talking about the future of work and whose book, Long Life Learning, How to Prepare Yourself for Jobs That Don't Even Exist, is coming out on election day. And Michelle, I want to make sure I cover this topic. So a friend and colleague in the career and hiring space, shout out Bill Leonard, sent me your, your Harvard Business Review article, which kind of got this whole kind of ship moving forward research, how workers shift from one industry to another. I talk about career switchers a lot on this show. And what I love about this article is the research that really digs into what's happening in the economy right at this moment and how displaced workers can use their current transferable skills to switch into new industries and fields that are growing. So in the article, you share possible career trajectories for workers in three industries that have been impacted really hard uh, retail, food and hospitality, and, and truck drivers. So tell us a little bit about how you gathered this information and what you learned that can impact people who are looking to make a switch from one of these uh, industries. Yeah, so two, two pieces to this. So if you, if you think about kind of the pre-COVID moment, it was hard for us even then to think about transferable skills in an applied manner. We kind of intuitively understand that we all have transferable skills. Many of them are those kind of human skills or those non-cognitive skills that we've discussed before. Um, but it's, it's hard for us, like if we are in sales and business development to navigate a transition into an entirely different domain and convince an employer to give us that chance because we have those transferable skills. Even folks with MBAs, right? If they go into more of an ops role and they're switching over to marketing, it is not necessarily easy to make pivots. It's never really been easy for us to transition from one industry to another, right? That's probably why you have a whole show about this. Um, it's not, not, a simple, not a simple problem to solve. And so what was fascinating to me about the COVID epidemic is suddenly you had an even more dire version of this where, especially in things like retail and hospitality, they were just completely decimated, right? You couldn't, you, even those workers who were laid off couldn't even, you know, find a related job in another retail opportunity because the whole industry itself was something you just couldn't return to. So what in the world were those millions of Americans supposed to do in order to pivot? And so what I did with, um, um, this amazing labor market analytics firm, uh, MZ, who um, I used to work with very closely um, at Strata, um, we looked at thousands of workers between the years of 2010 to 2020, and just looked at the way they made transitions from, you know, their first stable job to their next major job transition. And, you know, something that they stayed in for more than 90 days. And obviously you would assume that folks who, you know, are in retail sometimes stay in retail. And the same goes for people who start in office admin. They often stay in office admin roles. Um, and certainly that was the case. Majority of workers did kind of tend to just sort of stay in the same industry. But then we looked at the people who made these more sort of strange transitions or unexpected anomalous transitions and sometimes, you know, where even it was just like a couple of hundred people who were moving over into accounting or finance or IT support or HR. And we really wanted to understand 
what kind of skills were they saying they were acquiring over that switch? Because if we can kind of start to identify, and, and now because again, we have access to big labor market data, anytime you use LinkedIn, anytime you submit a CV, these are, you know, these are artifacts um, that different uh, companies can crawl and, and extract data from. So we can actually see the kinds of skills that people are saying that they have. And so what's interesting, right, is that we know people have actually fumbled their way through and navigated their way to a much better economic opportunity, but we don't have ways of replicating those. But if we start to identify actually what those skills are, and if we start to see that, for instance, if you just add on some skills in auditing and compliance and risk analysis when you're in retail, you can actually move into a job opportunity that pays a whole lot more. You know, you start off maybe at 30,000, you're moving up to something that pays more like $84,000 a year. So the benefits are huge if we can start to identify what are those more specific skills, because then we can actually build those targeted, more precise educational programs that just build those three to five skills in retail workers and launch them more quickly into something better. So that was the purpose of this, um, this piece um, that I wrote for the Harvard Business Review is to sort of say, let's look at these really idiosyncratic pathways that people are, are, are defining for themselves, which are really more like those kind of labor market exceptions, but start to think about how do we make them more the rule instead of just that exception. Yeah, I love that. And I, I still look forward to continuing to follow that work and also be engaged in that work because I think this this entire conversation that we've had today has just been fascinating and timely and something that people really need to follow to make sure they are taking the steps they need to stay ahead of their career management for the future. So Dr. Michelle Weiss, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing all of this knowledge with, with our listeners and for all the things you put out uh, there in publications. I encourage you all to definitely follow Michelle Weiss and what she's doing and definitely bookmark that her new book, Long Life learning how to prepare yourself for jobs that don't even exist is coming out in November and you can actually pre-order it right now. So um, Michelle, if people want to learn more and follow you, where is the best place? Uh, you can follow me on either LinkedIn or Twitter. It's RW Michelle. Um, and uh, yeah, I am not the greatest at tweeting, but I will respond if you, <laughs> if you reach out. Well, we so appreciate it. This has been great. And of course, thank you to Dion and Dana and to all of our listeners and followers. If you've missed a show, you can check out the more than 200 episodes free by subscribing to Dr. Dawn on Careers on iTunes and Google Play. And for more great advice, check out my website, drdawnoncareers.com and follow Twitter at Dr. Dawn Bram. We will see you next time. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.